0: from the texas veterinary medical association in austin texas this is veterinary vitals a podcast that focuses on current news in the texas veterinary profession i'm your host Audrea wood today on veterinary vitals i speak with dr tom nelson the medical director at Animal Medical Center of Northeast Alabama, on heartworm prevention compliance and treatment. Dr. Nelson comes very highly recommended for this topic from those in the TVMA network. He graduated from Texas A&M University College of Veterinary Medicine with his DVM in 1979. He started his professional career in Beaumont, Texas, where he owned a successful small animal practice for 20 years. Dr. Nelson is considered a pioneer for his clinical work in the study of heartworm disease in cats. His work resulted in a paper presented at the 1998 Heartworm Symposium and was published in Recent Advances in Heartworm Disease in 1998. Dr. Nelson continues to be involved in heartworm research, is the lead author of the American Heartworm Society guidelines, and has authored or co-authored 24 scientific papers and contributed three chapters to textbooks on the subject of heartworm disease. In 1999, Dr. Nelson relocated his family to Northeast Alabama and joined Animal Medical Center where he currently serves as the hospital director. He was also the president of the American Heartworm Society from 2004 to 2007. Listen in as I ask Dr. Nelson what veterinarians need to know or be reminded of in regards to heartworm prevention and treatment. Hi, Dr. Nelson. So to begin, can you introduce yourself and share a little bit about how you became interested in veterinary medicine?
1: Oh, that's a long story. I've <laughs> been involved in veterinary medicine quite a while. So I um, went to Texas A&M, started out as a, a marine biology major. Uh, very quickly realized that uh, it wasn't diving with the dolphins like Jacques Cousteau. It was kind of a boring to a ninth year at the time. Uh, my senior year, I was in the zoology program. My senior year, I was one of the founding members of the Parsons Valley Cavalry. And my horse midway through the year got very, very sick, and I spent a lot of time out of vet school. Uh, became very, very interested in it and decided that's the one I want to pursue. So even after getting my first degree, I had to kind of go back and for about a year and a half to get to all the prerequisites and get my grades where they needed to be. And and then started that school mainly in equine, Uh, practiced in Beaumont, Texas for 20 years, doing a lot of running horses and lots of heartworms. And uh, in 1999, I, I moved to Alabama or my wife's from just to have my kids more of an extended family with their cousins and things. So I've been uh, dealing with heartworms for quite a while. Uh, Joined the Hartman Society Board in 2001. I've done several uh, original research projects, uh, written numerous articles and about three chapters and textbooks. Wow,
0: that's fantastic. So you're the perfect guest for this topic today? <laughs>
1: well, I don't know about perfect, but I, I, I do have opinions. <laughs> I, I remember a few years ago I was asked by one of my classmates to respond to the Texas Listserv and is after i left and and somebody made some comment about being an expert, and I said, "Well, I do have an opinion and I'll live outside the state, so I make you an expert. So that that's what it has to do with somebody that will speak that doesn't is not local is the expert.
0: <laughs> so what would you say some of the most difficult or interesting heartworm cases are that you've been presented with?
1: The most interesting ones? Oh, so I've, well, so I've been treating heartworms for 42 years. Uh, we were preventing heartworms before the lactones, before we had melarsamine, uh, back when we didn't have True, uh, microflare size. So I've been doing it for quite a while. And it's progressed a lot from a, you know, almost uh, clients hear about the horror stories, what animals have been through, uh, where we're losing, you know, 10, 15, 20% of the patients, uh, severe complications to, with now the protocol we're using, you know, we've got respiratory complication rates down to six percent mortality almost down less you know a tenth of a percent so we can treat them much more successfully uh, i remember years ago a dog I treated uh six months later was having you know some respiratory issues we took x-rays and there's a lung lobe totally consolidated like a tumor um but we did surgery remove the lung lobe and that weren't that Lung lobe was basically a dead lung lobe because it was full of dead worms, and cut off the entire blood supply. We had to re- remove the lung lobe. Um, also seen a dog that was having cold extremities and back feet that used the back feet, and there were no pulses, almost like we see a saddle promise in a cat uh, with heart disease. And uh, did a surgical approach on the pulmonary. I mean, on the femoral uh, arteries to catheterize them. And out comes heartworms in the aortic side. And that's a, a rare thing that occurs whenever you have some type of right to left shunning in the heart, like uh, either a pain frame or rally or ventral defects. But so there's some shunting that allows it, the blood to go from right side to left side for them to get in the arterial thing. You mm-hmm. know. But you also find heartworms, the barren heartworms, you know, inside the spinal canal. Uh, inside brain, inside the eye. Uh, I actually had a client of mine, a uh, lady, 40 years ago who had a heartworm in her anterior chamber of eye in Beaumont, Texas. So it's, it's, There's all kinds of things that can happen with that parasite. And, you know, we go from when I was a, I guess, first year vet student, in 1976, a parasitology class, and we're taught that heartworms are species-specific. You know, they basically occur in dogs or canids, you know, it could be a wolf, a coyote, but if it occurred in anything other than a dog, it was a freak of nature. And we now know there's been over 30 species of animals where heartworms have been found. Uh, the most recent one we added to the list was a penguin in a zoo in Japan, of all things. So it's even found in a bird. Uh, we're, we're finding out about cats and that it's, you know, heartworms are probably occurring in cats at almost the same rate as dogs. It's just a different disease. And it's hard to diagnose because our tests are not very accurate. That.
0: Yeah. So you think it's gone undetected in cats quite a bit longer because of the available testing?
1: Oh, exactly. So in a cat, uh, you know, they're bitten by the same mosquitoes. Uh, they pick up the infective larvae in the skin. They migrate through the skin um get into the vascular tumor they will get into the pulmonary artery and then they die and so they never usually make it to adult worms but these little small you know microscopic larvae that are dying in the lungs are causing inflammation and causing lung disease and uh recently uh completed a a study where uh looking at vascular lesions and some cats here in in, uh northeast alabama you know we had like 30 percent of cats had lung lesions consistent with heartworms. Uh, my first cat study that I did back in 97 and 98 in Beaumont, Texas, I took it on initially trying to prove heartworms didn't exist in cats because we had a company running commercials saying that cats get heartworms when a heartworm kill your cat and you need to have your cattle prevention. And I've been practicing on the Gulf Coast for 17, 18 years in that environment and never seen one on a cat before, but I didn't know what I was looking for, you know. We're thinking about what happens in dogs and, you know, adult worms, but uh, it's morally the young immature worm. But even in these cats uh, out of 259 cats, we found an adult worm in 25 for right at 10% had adult worms. And I'd never had diagnosed one in 18 years in that environment. Cause I didn't know what I was looking for.
0: Ah, what a finding. well, how effective is heartworm treatment uh, for cats? Are you seeing similar rates of efficacy?
1: So in dogs, our heartworm treatments are very effective. You know, we can, we go back to when I first started practicing, when we were using the days of uh, we were only really ke- clearing about 80% of the adult worms. We were just reducing the worm burden. Uh, nowadays, you know, we're like at 99%. You know, so we are very adept at eliminating the worms. We're also very adept at reducing the amount of inflammation uh in lung lesions. Uh, what has been found is that this came out in the late 90s. Um that uh Dr. William Pussick in Puerto Rico discovered a intracellular bacteria called Wolbachia that lives inside the heartworm. In fact, there are and most on nematodes that are pathogens across the world harbor Wolbachia. And that, that bacteria within the worm causes a lot of the inflammatory components. And so around 2004, we started incorporating doxycycline into treatments to eliminate Wolbachia. And for when we killed the worm, we weren't showering. These bacteria and metabolites, the surface proteins for Wolbachia, Into the tissues. And that has significantly reduced the complication rates that we've seen. Uh, So we can now, like I say, we've gone from 22% respiratory complication to six and mortality of five or six percent down to a tenth of a percent if you're utilizing the complete protocol. Now, there's always people out there trying to do a shortcut. And oh, we don't want to use these arsenicals. We're going to sit there and just put them on prevention doxycycline, and and, yeah, you'll get rid of the worms over a year, year and a half. But you're still having lots of lung lesions, pathologies that's occurring in the lungs. If this is a working dog, a hunting dog, agility dog that you want to reach its full potential and have the least amount of damage to the lungs, you'll go to the Harvard Society website and use the protocol that was developed and published in that publication. And the one just using a prevention of oxycycline is not a quick fix. It's a year long fix, <laughs> you know? So it's not a quick fix. And um, it's, it, you know, you look at the pathology of those those lungs, they're, you know, they're causing significant amounts of damage. Uh, when a dog is treated with a lactone like ivermectin and moxidectin along with doxycycline, and then later is given melarsamine, Uh, there's a virtual almost absence of any arterial thrombi uh, that's been shown in experimental studies. And what we know clinically is these dogs are just doing so much better.
0: Okay. Now, excuse my naivete, but I had never heard of ivermectin until recently. Um, and I've heard it can be used to treat a variety of things. So, how is it used in heartworm treatment?
1: Well, our ivermectin is one of the macrocyclic lactones that is was a prevention uh, that came out in the mid '80s, and that's when we went from using diethylcarbamazine citrate, which we had to give every single day, to where we could use ivermectin once a month. The old diethylcarbamazine citrate uh, or DEC. Uh, Trade names were Kerasi. There was Flarabits. Uh, we had to give those every day because they worked when we had a molt from the third stage larva to the fourth stage larva, and they had to be in the dog during that molt. And so, mosquitoes—they're getting bit by mosquitoes, picking up these things all the time. So you had to give it every day because you didn't know exactly when they were going to get bit. Whereas the metacizine lactone, the you know, ivermectin, was working on both L3 and L4 in the tissue. And so you just need it to be able to eliminate the, those L3 and L4 before they melt to the immature worm, which usually occurs around day 50. Um, the later L3 is not as, as susceptible to it, the macrosic lactones, but we have to give them every month because if you, you know, out 45 days become less effective. And so by giving them, you know, every month, we were preventing heartworms. Uh, ivermectin was the first lactone, which was followed by Um, uh, then moxidectin and selamect. Those are the four common ones we use in dogs. Uh, there is a pinomectin, which is one that's also you know, one of the cat heartworm preventions. They're all macrosycloactone. They all work pretty much the same way, which is... That really, the, the drug itself is not killing the infective larva. The drug is inhibiting the larva from secreting proteins that allow themselves to invade the immune system. So, nematodes have a little excretory pore, and this pore secretes a protein that coats the cuticle that hides it from the immune system. So this is a foreign protein that's split around in the body. So the body is going to want to get rid of it, but it's able to mask itself for the immune system. When you give a macrosiglactone, it affects that pore and doesn't allow it to secrete the protein. Then the immune system recognizes it and attacks it. So then, yeah, that's so it's an effect. The, the macrosiglactones are unmasking it. So it's a, it's a combination between the immune system and the drug itself and these preventions are highly highly effective where you know when they first came out they were listed as being hundred percent effective, which probably wasn't true at that point in time, but uh, it's how they got approved and how how people wanted to uh, uh, market them uh, but they're probably 99 percent. Uh, there are some resistant isolates out there to some of these products that have developed over the years. Uh, we first started seeing resistant isolates back as early as 1998, and there was ever since then since 2003 we've been having this stuff, looking at it and you know, studying it. And there are some that we know that are that are, are resistant to these drugs, uh, but there are things we can do. You know, first of all, if dogs do get infected, we want to treat them and get rid of the worm. Um, and there are ways to, to, to limit, and like that's a that's a whole other long podcast, you know?
0: <laughs> a whole other can of worms. <laughs> yes, yeah,
1: another can of worms. But they are, but these things are highly, highly effective, and and, and something can be you know be ninety nine percent effective, and, and in most cases, that's going to work. So if you are looking that, uh, this is things that have been studied over the years. It's like we're going out and catch mosquitoes and how many mosquitoes carry effective larvae. And there are several studies that have been done that Charlie Courtney in Florida did and, you know, they were first saying like, there's like 2% of mosquitoes. And, uh, well, 2% of mosquitoes can carry effective larvae and they can transmit, you know, a couple of worms and mosquitoes feed at dusk and dawn for like a couple hours in the morning, a couple hours in the evening, so it's four hours a day. Um, and they're getting 10 bites an hour. Well, so if you look at that, it comes out, they're getting approximately 96 infective larvae over a month. And we test the drugs by giving 100, or anyway from 50 to 100 at one time. Uh, well, I grew up on the Gulf Coast, in north part of Galveston County uh practiced for 20 years in beaumont texas uh we would get 10 mosquito bites walking to the car it was that that you got lots, lots more out there so if you get mosquitoes where you're getting you know 100 bites an hour uh there's been studies showing especially after storms and flooding of, of and people a thousand bites an hour and then you get the new mosquito uh this and that's another thing that's changing is mosquito vectors now not all mosquitoes Transmitted harm, but there's also been introduction of invasive species, foreign species. The Aedes albopictus, which is the Asian tiger mosquito, came in through a boatload of tires into the port in Houston, Texas, in 1985. And that thing has since gone across the country, and now it's up in the, through the Great Lakes. Uh, that mosquito is a feeds all day long. Uh, it is an urban dwelling mosquito. So it lives inside, you know, in, in towns. It's not a marsh mosquito. Uh, it doesn't reproduce in like lakes and water. It reproduces in like, you know, gutters, downspouts, flower pots, storm drains. And it also can live for three months. And it also can tolerate cold a lot more than the, the other mosquitoes. And that's drastically changed how heartworms been transmitted. Uh, anything that you can do to change the environment, the mosquito comes in and it affects how the mosquitoes on there. But that mosquito, when you look at it, of uh, being able to feed 16 hours a day, and it can transmit six or seven, you know, effective larvae with a bite, and you're somewhere like in the Gulf Coast where you're getting 100 bites an hour, those animals are getting exposed to like 30,000 infective larvae a, a month. And if something's 99.99% effective, some of this will get through periodically. And most of these failures that we're seeing are, are low worm burdens. It's like only a few worms the animals were getting, but still they have heartworms and a few worms can cause damage. But the most important thing is that the products are given uh, appropriately. Our biggest issue in heartworm prevention is compliance. And compliance is a big issue in all medications. We all can go look in our medicine cabinets and find something that was prescribed to us that we didn't take all of You know, they've looked at studies that, you know, uh, children that are on chemotherapeutic drugs that you know, re- are responsible for their parents to give at home, they're getting about 75% of them. So that's the big thing. If, we're, if you're missing drug, you're supposed to be given something once a month, and you skip a month, and you're in a highly endemic area, uh, that's, that's how animals are getting. Yes, we have some resistance in isolates, but the biggest issue is compliance. Uh, we look at the first heartworm preventions were probably came out in the late 60s. The citrate was the late 60s when it came out, around 68 or so. Uh, the macrosigalactones came out in the mid-80s, 85 with which you go to once a month. And heartworms over the past 40, 50 years have gone from being predominantly something along the Gulf Coast and Mississippi Valley, the you know, warmer areas, to now they're all across the country. And that's occurred because people have taken their heartworm-positive dogs from the Southeast and so they moved to California and Colorado and to Oregon and to all these other places, and they then, when they go out there, you know, to people that, okay, let's pick, let's take Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix, Arizona, people moved out there in the 50s because they had uh, respiratory complications. And those respiratory complications, uh, you know, pollens, molds, were an issue. they moved to the desert. And when they moved to the desert, they were homesick. So one of the first things they did is they put a little, little planter on the window, a little flower box. Then they would put an irrigation system, and then they put in a yard and trees. And then they started building golf courses and, you know, diverting more and more water from the Colorado River. And, you know, the Colorado River water that's, you know, coming down, you know, through the Grand Canyon, just Lake Mead and burns all the water for those areas. Not one drop of it ever makes it to the ocean because every bit is being diverted. Uh, and We're having in around Phoenix, the south of Phoenix, you are irrigating and, and producing vegetables because it's a north warm area, just like we are in California. Pollen counts in, in Phoenix, Arizona now rival Houston, Texas. We went from a, a time period of one decade of not being able to find heartworms and coyotes, none. To 10% being infected. And that's just because you change the environment. You create an environment where where a mosquito can thrive by having you know, moisture. You bring in a heartworm positive dog from another part of the country, and then it gets into the wild population. And once it's in the wild population, you can't get rid of it. 90% of the of coyotes in the Sierra Nevadas in California have heartworm. It, it is, you know, we used to talk with, you know, soldiers this is this something that in the, uh, Oh, mainly in the in the southeast and the Gulf Coast. You know, we look at the numbers, the states with heartworms, California is now number 10. You compare, you know, Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, you know, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, all these southeastern states, you know, which is more in 10, we have California number 10. So it's out there, but, but prevention is poorly, poorly used. Compliance studies, I keep talking about compliance. AHA has done several compliance studies and looking at like how many people are vaccinating their animal. And these were, these were, these were, let me think it. These are compliance studies looking at AHA practices. And AHA practices, you know, at least AHA will say are, are, are the cream of the crop, these are the ones that adhere to certain standards. Uh, and and records in medicine and everything, but uh, they're looking at what percentage of animals are getting vaccinations, and it's around an 80-something percent. And they look what percentage of of those animals are getting tested for heartworms. And again, it's around 80%. The ones that are actually getting heartworm prevention, it's down around 50%. And our good practices, if you look at practices across the country, period, and this is, you know, uh, nationwide, it's around 35, 36% of the dogs that are coming into practices are getting heartworm prevention of any sort, not 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 year-round. This is any. Even one dose counts as if they got some heartworm prevention. Uh, yeah, it is very, very low. And it's been like that, and it hasn't gotten better. You know, 1992, Harvest Society, there was a, a looking at compliance. Again, it was 50% of the other patients. And these were people that come the Harvest Society meetings, people that really had an interest in heartworms. 50% of the of the dogs were getting prevention. And of those getting prevention, only 75% were getting it for the, the appropriate. Ones. So it's 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 not good. And we ask people all the time, Oh yeah, I'll be talking to a group of practitioners, oh, I'm, all my dogs are on prevention. And and they're getting it all in. in but what we fail to realize is that it's the old 80-20 rule. The 80% of your business comes from 20% of your clients. You may have 80% of that 20% on prevention, which makes about 16%. You know, as much as I preach it in, in my practice and involved this for so many years, when we look at compliance studies, again, that, that's the ones that are actually on my Canine patients that are getting heartworm invention, they're getting it 12 months out of the year coverage, it's around 16, 17%. Uh it's kind of it's kind of one of those ones that's out of sight, out of mind. And I, I have to, you know, I it's a true story. So dialthic citrate was the, the original one we were using, which was a, a monthly. And flarabits, what we were using. So uh in 1982, that's the 82, December of 82, I gave my wife this black lab puppy for it's actually my fiance. It was her Christmas present. And December of 82. We got married March of 83. Um, that July of eighty-three we got a a, a, a female black lab puppy. And then Joe and Katie and they got, you know, over the years they uh they had puppies and it was kind of always freak things that every time that katie was was pregnant my wife was pregnant katie had three litters and we had three kids it's kind of almost, don't know how it happened was coincidence things but um but back then we had all we had was flarebits and i had joe and katie on flare bits. and that, that bottle of flarebits bits sat in the food bin so when i got their food in the morning they got their flare bit before they got the food and there's one thing a Labrador will not let you forget, and that's to the feed it. They will remind you that they haven't been fed. And so I was very, very compliant. Well, uh were, you know, they became, there's a, they changed them. and made a flarebit plus where they added oxybenazole for intestinal worm coverage. So it was more than just part. And the oxybenazole gave a little aftertaste and, and Joe didn't like them as much. And so I would put the pill down there and he sometimes he'd drop it. But I would not give him his food until he ate the pill. But it would get from waiting a minute to two minutes to three minutes to four minutes to five minutes. And it kept getting longer and longer. Um, well, one time I was out of town for a few days and my wife was giving the flare of it. And she worked at our practice. She knew how bad heartworms were. She gave Joe his pill and he dropped it. She picked it up, gave it to him, and he dropped it again. Third time, she stuffed it down his throat. Joe would never take a flare of it out. So in 1991, after being on flare for eight-something years, I switched to a monthly product, the milamycin intercept. People very common. Switch to a monthly A year later, uh, we were going out of town, and I had the dogs at the clinic, asked one of my technicians, and said, since they're here, Let's go ahead get their vaccines updated, get their annual stuff done, uh, go ahead and get their heartworm tests. And I get back and she kind of looks at me cheapency, she says, but uh, Joe's heartworm test was positive. I said, There's no way in the world he's positive. He gets his prevention all the time. Well, let's send it to the lab. Because we were, this is a well test, we were doing them in the house, Sending it off the lab, comes back, definitely positive. So I start going through and pulling out my stuff and looking what I had done. And it was supposed to be on the first month. And it'd be the, this month, you get kind of busy. Next year, oh, it's the 10th of the month. And I get, or oh, it's the 15th of the month. I went back and counted pills during that 12-month period. Joe had gotten nine pills, which is 75% of what he was supposed to get, which is typical of most compliance studies. And I knew better. I was treating heartworms every week and diagnosing them every week. But my own dog got heartworm because compliance is the major problem.
0: So this is something I was going to mention because I'm not the best with medication compliance. Um, My dog receives the annual ProHeart injection. And this has really helped me since... All I have to remember to do is take her to the vet at least once a year for that. Um, And that's been incredibly helpful.
1: ProHeart came out in 2001. Uh, In 2004, there were some issues with the original ProHeart 6 where there were, um, and there were some anaphylactic reactions and there was some issues with some impurities and it got pulled from the market for a while. Came back in 2008. Uh, at the time of 2004, it was pulled from the market. They had like 23% market share. ProHeart 12 was out in Australia, probably about 2003-2004. And about the time six was pulled from the market, it was 12 was being developed here in the United States. 2008, it came back. Uh, originally, you had to do all kinds of hoops. You had to jump through. You had to have a lot of testing was done. It could be Dog can be over seven. There was lots of different things. Uh, those were reduced in 2010. Eventually, 2000, I think 12 or 12, they were totally eliminated where now it could be used across the board. And then Pro Hard 12 has come out, but it's been there. It's been out for a while. Just some people have to, because some early history have to get comfortable with it. It is a slow release product. Uh, it's using Moxie uh, at a very, very low level. Um, when you look at the ProHeart six, it's 0.17 milligrams per kilogram every six months. The ProHeart um, uh, 12 is 0.51 milligrams per kilogram. The last an entire year to put that in comparison, the topical, uh, moxidectin product that's got moxidectin and then a flea thing. It's a common one out there. It has 2.5 milligrams per kilogram that you use every month. So you're putting five times more Mazidectin one uh, once a month topically with that product, as opposed are injecting for an entire year. And that's partly you know, where we're you know, when we're talking about how the, the products work and about the uh, keeping the 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 worm from secreting the protein, the higher levels and the topical product are there to. For other parasites, it, that's to be able to get broad-spectrum intestinal parasite control, not necessarily for heartworm. Uh, the milamycin product that's used—it's uh, it's dosed for intestinal worm, uh, not for heartworm. It takes a lot less product for heartworm. Uh, so it's yeah, but yeah, it's been around. It's a uh, it, it it does eliminate compliance as an issue. Because you know it will when it was given, uh, and it's a very, very good, very, very safe product, and that's one of the things that it's a tool in our chest. You know, if, if it, but it is strictly heartworm. Uh, you do get some intestinal parasite control for the first month, but it is strictly heartworm. But it, if you look at you know, I'm a big proponent of broad spectrum parasite control, not just heartworm but also intestinal worms and, and ectoparasites like fleas and ticks because of these they can transmit. But if they're not getting it every month like they're supposed to, they're not getting broadfix and parasite controls. If I can only prevent one, I want to prevent heartworm. Because if I have something that's got fleas and gets flea by dermatitis, okay, yay, yeah, he loses hair, he's itching, scratching, but I can fix that. If he gets intestinal worms, an adult worm, yeah, he may have diarrhea, but I can fix that. Uh, he gets heartworms. Yeah, I can treat the heartworm and I can eliminate the heartworm. And I can do it better now than I could 40 years ago as far as decreasing complications. But I'm still going to cause some lung damage. And, the, and that lung damage was permanent. So it's, it's you know, trying to get a working dog back to the same level. Uh, as I said, my hunting dog, my dog, he was also my, my duck uh, hunting retriever dog. And after he was treated for heartworms, he never was able to perform at the same level, um, just because he had diminished, you know, one capacity. It was great being around, but to to work for long periods, he had difficulty after that. Uh, anything new? Um, and yeah, companies are always working, looking for something new. And they're always looking for new compounds, especially since in light of the face that there has been some resistant isolates identified out there. Most of those resistant isolates that have been identified are in the Mississippi Valley area. So we're talking along the Mississippi Valley, upwards, all the way up to, you know, the Cape Girardeau area in Illinois, but it's all along that area where we're seeing most of it. It's also areas where we have some of the highest transmission. So there's more numbers of worms out there. So it increases the likelihood of seeing them. Although they're, they've been identified in other parts of the country, but that's where the main ones we're seeing. So people are looking for new things. Um, the Harvard Society has is, is, uh, funded a study uh, for a group um in England that are looking at a new type of vaccine. Um years ago, uh Esco Corporation out of, of uh Colorado was trying to develop a vaccine. And they developed one, but it just never was as effective as the macroscyclacto. It was never close reaching that 100% effect. Of those type thing. Um this group and and England is looking at different methodology, a different way to do it. One was looking at cuticular proteins as targets uh, for reducing antibodies against this, is looking at uh, antigens associated with the GI tract. Of the worm. So they're looking at it a different way. And that's, that's one thing that's, that's looking out there. There are also people looking out there in ways to, to maybe affect the vector the mosquito i don't know you've you've heard you know they were doing some of these things with zika because of the the Aedes aegypti that particular mosquito introducing uh well wolbachia bacteria into them and so where the the Heartworm needs Wolbachia to to survive and to reproduce. The Wolbachia in the mosquito causes an issue, and we go back until way back, oh, many years ago, 50s early. You know, uh, screw worm was a big problem in cattle, and it was pretty much eliminated by they. They took male screw worms and irradiated them, made them sterile, and released them into the wild. So they were competing with the fertile. Uh, you know, through our males, and eventually eliminate them by affecting them that way. And there, there's a, the people looking at there, there are certain uh, species of Aedes aegypti that transmit heartworms, or certain uh, species that don't. And there's a, been a gene isolated, and so they're looking at can we, you know, introduce a gene into the population to make it where the worm can develop in the vector. Uh, that's a, another way. People are looking at, you know. So especially these areas where we see high transmission and even resistant isolates, adding a approved EP-approved mosquito repellent for dogs will help. It'll get bit. I mean, you think about what we do with uh mosquito-borne diseases of people when we start seeing outbreaks of, you know, sleeping sickness, encephalitis, or when Zika, you avoid getting bit by mosquito. You know, the same thing we've done with with malaria. So yeah, vector control, mosquito control will help too. And in these areas of high, high uh, transmission and where we see resistant isolates, adding a mosquito repellent can help. It will reduce, again, the number of ones they're getting bitten with. And if we can reduce the number of effective larvae they're getting. Our product's going to work better. As I say, if it's ninety nine point nine percent effective, you get ten thousand, you know, mosquito larvae in there. Something's going to get through. So, re- reducing mosquito transmission. You know, keeping the, the animals inside. Uh, doing you know mosquito control around your house. There are other things you can do to help.
0: Thank you for explaining all of that. That's really helpful. Now, veterinarians are great at reminding clients to get their heartworm prevention at appointments, but, but we're still seeing issues with compliance. So how can veterinarians really get the message across that compliance is key?
1: Well, so part of what, what helps is is I want everybody to be on the same page that the, they're hearing it multiple times when they come to the practice, that they are hearing it when they are, you know, the, the receptionists check them in, they're asking them, do you need any more prevention? How are things are going, you know? Uh, when the technician's in the room taking history, ask them the same type of questions. Oh, I see you haven't bought permission in a while. When the veterinarian comes in, again, ask them the same question. And keep iterating because it takes multiple times. That's why commercials run so many times on TV. It takes multiple times for us to sink in. So having multiple exposures is a good thing. Another thing is that we can do nowadays, that was harder, you know, many years ago, uh, most practices are computerized. And, you know, when we had to sit there and all our reminders were sending out with a postcard, uh, that was, you know, labor intensive and a certain amount of it wasn't cheap. You know, the postage and buying the cards and doing everything. Uh, nowadays, with text messaging and with email, you can send reminders, you know, just set them up automatically and make it very inexpensive. So I this was a, a you were talking about ProHart, all right? Um, 2001 when ProHeart came out and we introduced it to our practice there in Beaumont, Texas. Uh, And because it was an injection, like a vaccine, so we need to set up a reminder for it. For them to come back in six months to get another one. And one of my employees asked me, well, if we're sending reminders for the injection, why don't we send the reminders for the monthly? And we're thinking, well, when they run out, they know they run in. You know, you're thinking all different reasons why. But I really didn't have a good one. So we, in, we introduced sending reminders for Harbor. And if they, a person only bought one dose, next month they got a postcard. They lost six doses, six months later they got a postcard. We increased sales by 35% by sending reminders. People just need to be reminded, and those are things we can do by setting up those type of, of uh, programs. You know, and, and thinking well, when they run out, they know they're out. Well, if you have heartworms, they don't see, and they may not even know there's an issue until the worm is going through its lifespan, and the worm's dying. That's when most of the pathology occurs, but part where the worm dies. So the dogs have worms for five to seven years. The worm starts dying, but during the time before, they were acting normal. And if it's a couch potato dog that doesn't do a whole lot, they may never show any clinical because that's the number one factor of the disease is how active they are. So they don't see it, they don't perceive it as an issue. Whereas if your dog has fleas and he's scratching, He's gonna drive you crazy. They're going you wanna do something about it. Or you see a big full tick on the dog, you wanna do something about it because you it's a visual thing to you. For the heartworm is not, and it has to be there a while because it causes it's problems. And the other thing is that especially with a monthly product, um you are okay. I you go home, and this is a common thing. We we send somebody home. They get they buy a, a pack of six and they go through the sick and they come back a you know year later and we realize they never got it refilled and it's either going to be oh I got busy and forgot to get it refilled or it's like well I still have some left because they're not giving it once a month um mm-hmm. it, you know those are common things but if but the lot of ones it gets if you are literally run out of heartworm prevention, gave, I gave my last one today, okay? I gave my last one today, and I need—I don't need another one until a month. So I have all month to do it. So I'll go next week when I'm going to the grocery store, I'll go buy and pick them. Or, or I have to be taking the kids, we would drive them out there. And it's like, you, you put it off, you put it off. And a month goes by and you forgot. And just you don't do it. It's, you know, as I tell people, heartworm prevention is not like toilet paper. You run out of toilet paper, you will go tomorrow and buy toilet paper. You know, you might use paper towels one time, but you will go buy toilet paper. Whereas with the heartworm prevention, I got time to get it. I'll get it next week. I have a month to get it. And then we forget. But if you, as a reminder system set up, where it's literally coming to you, uh, I get a, a text reminder, it's time of the month to give your heart prevention. We used to have years ago little bitty timers that people could put on their refrigerator that went off, you know, at 30 day intervals to, to give the pill. Uh <clears throat> to me, those were kind of like snooze alarms, you know, on your phone, It's snooze button. <laughs> it's snooze button. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. But yeah, we there are things we can do. We can set up a reminder. There, there, are programs out there um, that are you can set up where your product is mailed to you once a month. So when it comes to the mail, you give it. Uh, we have lots of tools that we can use to do. Just got to make sure er, we have to make sure they realize the importance of. It. A lot of people think that heartworms are going to be a bigger problem out in the country, and you know, than in town. Or it's just the opposite. It's a bigger problem in town because you have more animals that have are infected. Yeah, you got coyotes out there and, and wolves, but they're not. You know, you, you don't sit there. Don't walk down the street, and, and then in every backyard, there's a coyote. But there's a dog, and sixty-five percent are not getting harm prevention at all. Tony McKay. Entomologist up at the University Arkansas State University does a study looking at mosquitoes carrying infective larvae, and where if you had a and and this is a lot of things to be done before just routinely catching them, you might be looking at five six percent. You know, this was out in the in the swampy area. If you were if, if she was in a neighborhood where there was a known heartworm positive dog like in, you know, in, 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 in a few houses around this particular one, she caught them, it was like 30% had an effective larva. If she went into the backyard where the one positive dog was, it was 72% had an effective larva. So the closer you are to that, that animal, uh, the more mosquitoes you're gonna have. If I live in a very, very high-end neighborhood, estate lots of multiple acres, you know, four or five acres type thing. Number one, if there's a stray dog, they call him on control and I usually take care of it pretty quick. As I go into an older neighborhood where houses are just, you know, you've got ten feet between each one. And uh and with multiple dogs, you know, a, a mosquito usually only travels a couple kilometers, you know, mile and a half from where it's at. So they're not, you know, the our oh, one positive dog that's uh, across town is not going to affect your dog, but what's in your neighborhood does going to affect your dog. So, the more people are congregated together, the closer they are together, the more transmission is going to occur, the more risk there is. And and I have people ask me this all the time, and, uh, and and you know, what is the best product to use? And my answer is. The product that the client's going to use are parting to label instruction? What's going to get them to use it, and then, and then also, what are the risk factors and other mitigating factors? Do I have an issue where you know I have whipworms? Once you get whipworms in your environment, those eggs live forever, and those dogs can get infected over and over again. So, having a product that has whipworm control associated with it is going to be good for that. If I have a big issue with ticks and ticks can transmit lots of nasty diseases, you know, either adding a tick prevention uh, or there are now products out there that have tick prevention added to them. We're also doing risk assessment. What, you know, what is the risk? Does your dog never go anywhere? Your dog doesn't go to the kennel. Does your dog really need kennel call vaccine? So what what's predominant in your, your area? And there are, you know, what, and with ectoparasites, what ticks you have in your area? Because not all ticks are the same. And they don't all, they don't all, uh, the same products don't work the same with each species of tick. And certain species of ticks, especially on the Gulf Coast, like uh, Amuloma americanum, uh, they can transmit, you know, patasinosis, which where that particular, you know, you wanted something a label to take care of that tick. because. Um, you know, we're seeing resistance and ectoparasites, you know, where certain products used to work on ticks aren't working like these. So, so all things you gotta know is every Everyone's tick's different, everyone's a little different. We have to treat them accordingly. So what what do I have in my area? What do I need to protect with? And and where where am I going? And you know, a person that takes their dog and shows and goes to different shows and things across the country, whether it's you know, dog show, agility growth, field trial show. You know, I'm going to want to, you know, immunize that dog differently than one that's never goes away from home. But our parasite controls the same way. What what are the risks? What are the parasites I have? What do I need to protect?
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this today. I know I have learned so much.
1: En- enjoy your, your questions and, and, and meeting you. And, uh, and maybe we'll do it again sometime.
0: That was Dr. Tom Nelson, sharing about heartworm prevention compliance and treatment. A quick announcement for TVMA members. Membership renewal invoices will be issued on June 1st, so keep your eyes out for an email from our office. Southwest Veterinary Symposium is in Fort Worth this year, September 22nd through 25th. There's a lot to look forward to with four days of continuing education, exhibits, interactive labs, and events. Visit swvs.org to register. We hope to see you there. If you have any topics you would like covered on this podcast or would like to nominate a guest, please email me at awood tvma.org. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with a colleague and rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. A like, a share, a retweet. These are all great ways that you can support TVMA that won't cost you a dime. I'm your host, Audria Wood. Thanks for listening.